Many of you will know that many years ago now, many, many years ago now, I was a teacher uh, in a boarding school up in York. Uh, and the main school building of that school, it's the oldest school in the country, uh, was uh, an incredible building as you walked into the main entrance. You feel like you walked in really to a, a set of a BBC period drama, uh, if you like. It was very much like that. Now, inside the main entrance of this school, uh, on the oak-panelled walls, outside the headmaster's office, was um, some... Some cabinets, some glass cabinets and some shelves on which were trophies and shields that the boys had won in sporting events and some academic uh, kind of events as well. They were positioned there simply because that was the place of honour within the school. You walked in, wow, there, place of honour. But you see, right beside of those and in the most special place, right outside the headmaster's door, were some boards, the boards of honour. For the school. And on those boards were the names of old boys who had done the most extraordinary things. Uh, There was a prime minister on that board. There was uh, Olympic medal winners on that board. There was Turner Prize winners on those boards. There was even one name, Guy Fawkes, who was on that board because he was an old boy of that school. Uh, and his name had been engraved on the board simply because it was a bit of a school joke, really, because we all know he was an utter scoundrel. And he was there, a bit of tongue-in-cheek, you know, boarding school, ha-ha. And there he was on the board as kind of an old boy, a very infamous old boy rather than a famous, mighty, great old boy. Boards like that are put up in schools like that to recognise great people. And our two passages today really are are like boards of honour in many ways. Our first passage, if you just flip back to chapter 21, verse 15 to 23, there's a few details there, aren't there? They're exciting details, but the stories are brief. It's actually more like some of those Christmas newsletters you read. You get it's the kind of season, isn't it, now where some families write to you with a Christmas newsletter. You know the kind of things uh, a family writes, telling you in very brief form how wonderful they are. And how perfect their lives are with pictures to illustrate. Now there's more reality in chapter 21 of 2 Samuel. Uh, but it's, it's, a very, it's a small uh, role of honour with a few details to boot. Our second passage, if you just flip forward there to chapter 23, uh, begins like that. But soon, as we haven't gone through, but we will go through, it just becomes a long list of names and names uh, and where, people, where they came from as well. We'll look at those passages in more detail soon. But have you ever wondered, uh, over the last couple of weeks, we've been floating around these last few chapters of 2 Samuel uh, for a couple of weeks now. And we will be doing that uh, next week as well. They might seem like random passages. And if you've been with us for a while here at Christchurch Hillsville, you're kind of thinking, that's a bit odd. Because normally we just kind of work through a book, you know, chapter by chapter, because that's how God has revealed it to us. And that's a sensible and good thing to do. But why did you last week, for example, we go to chapter 21 and chapter 24? And then, and then this week we're going chapter 21 and then 23. It's a really funny way, isn't it, to finish off a book? Let me j- very briefly show you why we're doing this. The reason is that many people see these last chapters of of 2 Samuel, they're like the the appendices that you might get at the end of a big book. 
Or if you have a collection of books, you sometimes get a little kind of leaflet, don't you, with a, with a broad summary of what that whole collection looks like. And remember, if you remember, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, they used to be considered as one, walking through the successive rules of King David and King Solomon. Therefore, many people look at this little section, chapter 21 to 24, and they say, oh, this is just a little overview of the two books that have gone so far, the rule of King David. They're, in a sense, giving us the way that we should, they're directing us, they're leading us to show us how we should view the whole of 1 and 2 Samuel and the rule of King David. In a sense, it's a lens to look through, to observe the whole regarding God's kingdom rule under David. Therefore, we must see these final chapters as they are. They are a carefully organised collection of pieces that have put us to, been put together like this in the way that they have to point us to a clear conclusion. And we're going to come to that in a moment. Now, the writer does it in a really particular way, and it's a literary structure called a chiasm. And I'm going to show you what that is. And before you fall asleep, I'm going to show you very briefly kind of why he uses it and how it kind of relates in chapters 21 and 24. That's how it's structured. Now, a chiasm essentially is a, is a structure that's used in lots of ancient literature outside the Bible and also inside the Bible. And chiasms are used to show how two things relate to one another, and then another two things relate to one another, pointing towards a major important thing, a conclusion. They're sometimes used and explained using an onion. You know when you chop an onion up? You kind of take off one side, and what happens to the other side? Well, because they're joined, they're related, aren't they? The other side falls off as well, and then you go into the next layer, and that layer relates to that side, and so on. You get to the centre point. I don't know if that's the nicest bit of an onion, but anyway, that's it, that you get the point. Each side is related to the other. Now, a chiasm literally means a diagonal argument or a diagonal arrangement. One side is related to it. Let me show you here. Sonia is very helpful. I'm trusting her here. Now... Next one, that wasn't quite finished. Take that one off. I've done a really silly, stupid chiasm here, okay? I've made two statements which are similar and related. A, apples are green, and A, dash if we like here, I was in an orchard of green apples. Um, and the two things are related, but they're kind of saying the similar thing. The apples are green and I was in an orchard, but that's a statement, that's an observation, okay? And then B, apples are sweet. Some, you know, don't go to varieties, but there we go. Um, apple sweet. I had sweet apples for lunch on a Saturday. The two things are related, but they are both, both of these things are pointing diagonally. There's a good diagonal there. Thank you, Sine. They're pointing to the, my main concluding point is that apples are awesome. Okay? And that is the way that chiasm works. That two outer things relate to one another. These two things relate to one another. They point to a central point. Okay, so you see how they're related. Enough of apples, but enough of chiasms in a way. Let me show you though quickly how these final chapters are related um, within the book of 2 Samuel. Last week, Ash took us through these two passages, chapter 21 and chapter 24. And they were related by the fact, this was a story about the sin, the sin of Saul. And this is a story really about the sin of David. Two very related things of two different kings. Saul, David came out better, uh, but they were related in that way. 
our passages today, here, chapter 21, 15, 22, and this one here, chapter 23, 8 and 39, again are related because they are two reports of David's battles and his warriors. And then next week, we'll see these two passages in the centre. Again, remember, they're pointing us into that centre point, the main point. And we'll see what that is next week with the Song of David and the last words of David uh, in those sections. Now, it's important to remember, as I know, Kaisers, let's push that aside for a moment. But these structures don't follow any chronology. They're not time-based in that way. So, for example, in chapter 21, when Mephibosheth is mentioned... Uh, in Jerusalem before the famine and before executions occur, we know that that is probably best in time frame just after chapter 9, really. That's where that story sits, but it's here to give a lens to the whole picture of the whole uh, two books. Now, all of that is okay. Just because it doesn't fit chronologically doesn't mean that the writer is sort of picking things out. He's making a big point. It's an overview To show us how we should view the rule of King David. A lens to observe through, if you like. So you see why we're doing these two passages today. They are related. Last week we saw the the problem of the sin in Saul and David. It comes out better, as I said. But they both show us the need for a better king. To rule God's eternal kingdom that has been promised in David's line. They're the promises that have been going through these books. And this week, the passage's point is less to the sin problem, but more now to the fragility problem in that king, King David. They point us forward again, not only for our need for a sinless king, but our need now for an eternal king, an immortal king. Which is funnily, surprisingly, where we end up here next week in the Song of David. So today, two very similar passages reports of David's battles and the warriors of those battles pointing us remember to the fading mortal fragile nature of the king king David and that is our first point you see it on our sheet it says the fading king there the fading king let's run through these first accounts chapter 21 verses 15 through to 23 the accounts here are quite brief aren't they and the first one we see is of David Many times before, he would have gone out to the Philistines, fighting the battles. But in verse 15, just cast your eyes down there, you'll see, I think that's probably the shock of the passage. It would be like Mo Farrow in a 5,000 metre race, and, you know, gets to the last lap, and we're listening on the TV and uh, and watching, and there we hear the report that Mo Farrow, oh, he's he's just pulled up a bit. You know, he's, he's just sort of relaxed a bit at the end. He's, he's a bit exhausted. He didn't do quite enough. We know that's not what we're expecting. We're expecting him to boom, go out there and win again. Well, it's the same here. We expect the mighty warrior, King David, to be winning, to be fighting, to be strong. We see here he's exhausted. He's exhausted. He's the fading king. And his men see this and they do everything they, do, everything they can to preserve him, don't they? Let's run through the story. Verse 15, he's exhausted. Verse 16, we see Ishibi, Benob, um, there with his amazing armour, with his big sword. And there he's about to take the head off of David. And what happens? Verse 17, Abiashai comes to rescue David. This is a close call. A very close call. And David's men come together and they swear on oath. 
that this can never, ever happen again. And look how they phrase it in verse 17. Never again will you go out with us to battle so that the lamp of Israel will not be extinguished. They liken David to a lamp here. They know that if you see, if his life is taken, Israel would struggle in darkness, their confusion. He was their Messiah. The man who led them, he's the one who was uh, uh, the king after God's own heart. The risk, you see, was now way too great to take David into battle to the front line because they felt his death would spell disaster, not for just for him, but for the whole nation, God's people. And it's easy, isn't it, for us to think of people and leaders like that, that they're in some ways indispensable or so powerful that they pose a grave threat. And in the world's economy, that is true to a degree. I guess a Trump America will bring a note of fear to many. But in God's economy, we must remind ourselves of the numerous crises, crises that we see throughout biblical history, where the lives of God's people rested very precariously on just one person's shoulders. What if Isaac, for example, had been killed by Abraham? Or what if, you know, as Moses was placed into the basket on the river uh, amongst the reeds, that the basket had flipped over and drowned Moses? What if Ishibi Benob had sliced off the head of David here in 2 Samuel? What if? Oh, what if Herod, looking forward now, had got his way and had slaughtered every child under the age in Bethlehem? And Jesus, our King Messiah, had died. What if? Did you see? In God's hands, somehow in God's hands, in his power, in his love, in his sovereignty, the one on whose shoulders God's promises rest, well, that one, however precarious, has always been preserved. What was essential in this military role of honour was that God's king and therefore God's promise in and through that king remained. But there's much more to this section. Uh, there are these men who fight uh, for their king and they are appropriately and honourably mentioned here. The warriors take on some amazing brutes as you go through the passage. Extraordinary, isn't it? And, uh, you know, to protect God's king and God's kingdom. And we want to know more. You look at verse 19 and they take on Goliath's brother and every one of us is going, Goliath, we, we want to know more about Goliath's brother because we had so much about Goliath. It must have been amazing. And then you get to verse 20 and you get the six-toed, six-fingered descendant of Rapha. And, and you think, 24? All amazing. And, but all we get is that they just died in battle against the brave warriors of God. Now, although praise, as always, belongs ultimately for, to God for empowering these men, God's instruments here are rightly honoured. And that was true then, and it's true in the New Testament too. As you turn to many of Paul's letters, you know, the end of Paul's letters, many of his letters... Uh, he, he speaks and lists, doesn't he, of, of many men and women who fought, not physical battles, but spiritual battles for their Messiah, King Jesus, and the spiritual eternal kingdom which he established 
and rules over. You remember Priscilla and Aquila in Romans 16, verse 4, if you want to look it up later. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Many men and women are honoured for their defence of God's kingdom, serving their Messiah, King Jesus. But I wonder, I wonder as our great, 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 great grandchildren look back to the annals of history of Christ Church Earlsfield, obviously it'd be written up. I wonder how we will be remembered. Personally, I'm so grateful to so many of you who pray, lots, who stand, who serve so faithfully, who don't give up. Many of you wield your swords, the sword of the Spirit, as you reach out to your friends with the gospel. We will never have a board of honour, but I'm trying to say thank you, because it is right to honour those who fight for Christ's kingdom. (coughs) I want us to finish this section, though, if I I may, by taking the focus back to God. I think that's the right place. Because, you see, with all the fighting and the excitement here, it's easy to forget what God is doing and has done. Because God is fulfilling his promises. It's extraordinary. Uh, If you go back to 2 Samuel 3.18, where he said, he, uh, he said, By my servant David, I will rescue my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. See, what Saul was unable to do, well, David is able to do with God's strength. Now, what do we learn about God in this? What what is the theology that that we learn as we see God in in action here? What we learn is that God's promises, however long ago, were made. They prove trustworthy, even to the end. And some of us will need reminding of that today and tomorrow in the weeks to come, the months to come, and the years and the decades to come. Probably more and more so as we reach our end in this world. God is faithful to his promises. Last brief little point, if I may, from these few verses. And it's a little warning, if I may. Look at verse 20 and 21 with me, if you can. I love this little account. Again, we go back to the man with six toes and on each hand and six fingers, 24 in all. Now, I don't think the writer here is ridiculing him, despite the tone of my voice. I think he's just describing him and his fingers and his toes, though they may be interesting for us to kind of look at and, ooh, yeah, well, that would be a bit strange, wouldn't it? They don't really count. Why? Because it's, it's not his anatomy that really matters here. It's the attitude of his heart that really matters. Look at verse 21. It's so, it's so brief, but it's so important. He taunted Israel. He taunted Israel. And it's exactly the same word that that was said of Goliath back in 1 Samuel 17. He mocked and derided Israel. He taunted Israel. And if you taunt Israel, you taunt God. The God of Israel. Both Goliath and this six-toed hulk met the same end though. You see, you can't live your life deriding and mocking God. And if you do, then one day, however British 
the way that you do that in your cool indifference. If you keep mocking God, one day you will be silenced as these men were silenced. Isaiah 54 verse 17 says, promises this, it says in the end all of God's enemies will be silenced. So please, if you are currently right now an enemy of God, that is you are not trusting him with your whole life. You don't have a personal relationship with Jesus, trusting his life, death and his resurrection. Then please allow yourself just a moment to be warned by these silenced hulks. 24 fingers and toes in all. The king is fading. We see our need for an eternal king, an immortal king. Uh, The men who faithfully fought for the king uh, and the kingdom must be honoured. We've seen that. But rest assured, God is faithful to his promises and he will silence his enemies again as he promised. But let's now turn to the mighty warriors. Let's flip over the page. We're now in chapter 23, verse 8 through to the end there. Our second point, the mighty warriors. Let's turn to them. As I mentioned, this very much reads like a roll of honour that we would see on a board. But please don't fall asleep at this moment. I know it is very difficult, isn't it? It's difficult to see how Zalman the Ahite can in any way teach or encourage you today. But let me make a few points, if I may. Work with me here, if you can. The account begins, and I have to say, this is utterly awesome. This is probably my favourite passage as a child and still remains still today. I remember hearing these words as a, a child and just wanting to be one of David's mighty warrior three. I can only imagine how good the uniform was. But was. Look at the leader of them though in verse 8 if you can for a moment. You've got Josheb Bashabeth, the whatever might. Um, chief of the three, he was raised his spear against the 800 men whom he killed in one encounter. How amazing is that? But there are three of them. And then there's Eliezer in verse 9, and who in verse 10 stood his ground and struck down the Philistines till his hand grew tired and froze to the sword. Amazing. And then you get Shammah in verse 11. Who defends a field of lentils. I'm sorry. (laughs) Why you didn't laugh at that, I do not know. I mean, if it was a field of cows, which beef could come from, I'd understand. But lentils. Anyway. There are three mighty men of David. I remember hearing these stories as a boy. And all I could think about and focus on was the men. I just thought they were amazing. And I wanted to be like them. But they were amazing and they were faithful and they were brave and they were courageous, loyal men. Exactly what a man ought to be, but in spade loads. But the secret behind these men must not be overlooked. Look at verse 10 and verse 12 because it is very striking. Because it was the Lord who brought them victory. Oh, these men had daring kind of courage, but their victories are a gift, you see, from God. And I think we would do very, very well to remember that ourselves. It's so easy, isn't it, to forget that our successes, our houses, our cars, our jobs, our promotions, our clothes, our absolute, our successes, our gifts. We've got to remember that. And we must turn them into praise before they become idols in our hearts. 
The story continues as we focus in on one particular event where these three mighty men go and get some water of all things. Look at verse 13 through to 17. It's utterly extraordinary. The king is fading again. Remember that. It mirrors. The picture is there again. He's fading. He needs water. Verse 15. The Sainsbury's local is shut. So these men, what do they do? They break through the enemy lines of the Philistines. Get some water in Bethlehem in the well there. Oh, they don't go round at all. They just go through the enemy lines again. Why wouldn't you? You're a mighty man. So they come back and they give the water to David. That itself is utterly extraordinary. But then look at verse 16. He refused to drink it and instead he poured it out before the Lord. Far be it from me, Lord, to do this, he said. Is it not the blood of men who went at the risk of their lives and David would not drink it? I mean, you've got to think, what is David doing here? He's fading. He needs water. And these mighty warriors have risked absolutely everything to get this water. And he pours it out. And I guess when you read that, you kind of think, oh, they're probably going to be quite angry about that, aren't they? I think actually they would have admired him all the more. This isn't David being wasteful here. This is David worshipping. David is melted, utterly melted, by the kindness of these men. And all he can do is to pour it out in praise of the Lord who has provided these kindnesses through these men. I don't know, has anyone done something so utterly extraordinary for you, so unexpected, that they've cared for you in a way which you never thought would ever possibly happen? They've gone out of their way extraordinary ways to love you they snatch water over enemy lines for you in such moments of course we naturally want to turn to them and give them thanks don't we but we must surely be more obligated to give thanks elsewhere because we must pour it out to the Lord who astonishes us and melts us with such kindness now verse 18, we've got to go on. I'd love to spend more time there. I'd love that passage. But verse 18, it becomes a bit confusing here because we have Abishai uh, appears as the chief of the three. If you look down to the footnote there, you'll see it could be the 30 as well. We're not going to go into the translation because I haven't got a clue really. Um, I've read it a bit and it's so confusing. But basically we think he's the chief of the 30 or the three. Oh, anyway, let's move on. The job's already taken. It's a difficult translation issue. We haven't got time to dwell on this section, but these men that follow are truly awesome. We see they kill lions in snowy pits. They're huge Egyptians. They're they're David's bodyguards. And by verse 24, we begin to see the list of names and the places where they come from. This begins the role of honour for the mighty warriors of David. And their names are here because they are King David's most loyal and most esteemed troops. They excelled in fighting for their king and God's kingdom. Uh, For their strength and their bravery, they are noted. God gave rest to David and Israel, as he promised back in 2 Samuel, chapter 7, verse 1. Through the exploits and the arms of these men. Here simply, their work isn't forgotten. And I want you to be encouraged by this. Because if you're fighting for your Messiah and his kingdom, 
That is, you are, you are going out this week with these cards in your hands, nervous wrecks as we are, and saying, I'd love you to come to a carol service. You know what you're putting on the line as you invite your friends and your neighbours in a hostile, secular culture in which we live. Well, if you're prepared to do this, you will face some huge battles, but I want to encourage you and say they will not be unnoticed. No words will be written, but there will be words that you may hear one day when you are called home. Matthew 25 says this, the master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. Let me finish with this. Did you notice the last name on the whole list? We didn't have it read out. Turn over your pages and you'll see. Go to verse 39. Let me finish with this. Do you know who that is? In verse 39 we have Uriah the Hittite. And it finishes, they, there were 37 in all. Now you see, the last name on this list is loaded, isn't it? With the most painful of memories. Uriah was the husband of Bathsheba. If you turn back to chapter uh, 11 and 12, you will see there David uh, had, a, had an affair with Bathsheba and Uriah was his, her, sorry, husband. And he then had to kind of cover up the problem and, and send him to the front line and got him killed. He murdered Uriah the Hittite. Great King David murdered Uriah the Hittite. So this list ends with the name of the one who did not betray the king. Uriah was faithful to the end. This list ends with the one who was betrayed by the king. And it's, you have to ask the question, is it here to haunt us? Is it here to haunt David? Is it a reminder that the things that you and I have done in our pasts, however grim and dark they are, that they'll never go away? They'll always be on a list somewhere as they were for David's list here. Well, let me come for you and say, I don't think that is true. I think this list finishes with Uriah to show us that history was not made by these mighty warriors, but rather by the grace of God, whose forgiveness and mercy and kindness was needed even by great King David. Our oh, memories of our past can haunt us, But the point is they need not if they humble us instead. This was the the testimony certainly of the Apostle Paul. Do you remember? He was the greatest of all sinners, he declared. But what did he say? But by the grace of God, I am what I am. See, even our darkest moments, the most appalling and shameful memories that you and I will have, when immersed in divine grace, need not haunt us. There must still be godly grief for our sin. Many of us will still have, maybe for our whole lives, broken hearts. But we are forgiven sinners, saved by God's unmerited kindness and his grace. Uriah the Hittite stands here at the end to show that a fading king, even with the mightiest of men, was not enough. We need a perfect king, an eternal king, 
who will never fade. A Messiah King who will welcome his mighty warriors home saying, well done, good and faithful. I want to pray now that that is true for each one of us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's easy to read these accounts and and just think bravado, macho men going out with their swords and doing so much. Yet of course, behind all of this is the wonderful, powerful, sovereign, loving, merciful, kind, gracious hand of God. And it is that hand that we want to rest in. We want to trust our perfect, eternal King, the Lord Jesus the Messiah who loves us so much and who's offered his life and his death and his resurrection in order to give us everything. Help us trust him. Help us love him. Help us serve him. Help us honour him this week, I pray. Amen.